0: There is another dimension beyond anything you've known before. A world of ideals that are as vast in their significance as they are in their application. You are traveling into another reality. A world that lies between imagination and the touch points of everyday life. A wondrous kingdom whose boundaries are supernatural. You're entering a parallel world. You're here, and that we have the opportunity today to uh, spend some time in the Word together. Uh, I'm grateful for this privilege that uh, God has given us to be in His Word. Uh, And I'm also grateful for this past week. We had a a couple of days, Sherry and I, and Christine, our daughter, to uh, go to St. Louis to visit Sherry's family, and um, it was hot. Um, It was 107, 108 heat index almost every day. And and so we didn't get to do a lot outside, but we did get a chance to see family and uh, spend some time together. That was good. I hope you had a safe celebration of the 4th and, and remembered this week to um, call to mind those people who have served and served well. And the freedom that only God gives us in this country. And uh, I'm appreciative of that. So we had a chance to reflect on that and do that. I'm glad you're here this morning opportunity to be in the sermon series we have on the parables that are found in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uses these parables, which simply defined our earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, okay? And that's a simplistic way to look at it. There's more to it than that. But uh, we have the opportunity to do that today, and we have an opportunity to, uh, to challenge ourselves and to hear what God wants to say to us. And I want to talk to you today, in just a moment, about keeping one eye on heaven. Okay? One eye on heaven. All right? But before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here today. For the privilege of your word. How it speaks to us. How it changes us. How it challenges us how it just takes us and shapes us and molds us if we open our hearts and our minds. And so, Father, I pray that you will allow us to hear what we need to hear, to see what we need to see in the text, and then, Father, be able to apply those things to our lives. We're grateful most of all for Jesus, who allows us to be able to do so. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, keep your eye on the prize? Anybody heard that phrase before? Yeah. And what that means, it can mean something different in almost every walk of life. Uh, For me, from an athletic background, I learned that when I was young, seventh grade, I went out for track and field for the first time. And uh, my coach said, what do you run? I said, I don't know. He said, you're now 440 man. I didn't know what that meant. It just simply meant I was gonna run 440 yards as fast as I could. And the one thing I learned from him early on is that if I sprint the first 200 yards, I'm not gonna win the race, okay? You gotta pace yourself. But he also taught us in any race in track and field, do not look back. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep your eyes on the prize. Because if you keep your eyes fixed there, you're not going to let anything else come into play. Now, that's true in the athletic world. For example, in baseball, in, uh, in a hitter, a batter at the plate, uh, some of the greatest hitters of all time, it's been proven of Ted Williams and Tony Gwynn and other players that uh, they could only see the baseball up to about three to four feet away. After that, you're swinging in a zone. Most players, even at the professional level, can't see the baseball past six feet out. They're swinging it at a zone, thinking the ball won't break too much and they'll be able to get a hit. But the key to being a good hitter is to keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the prize. Shooters the same way. In basketball, I coached basketball for 11 years at a small college. And uh, when I'd work with our shooters, Uh, We would help them understand that it's not just form, you know, keep your elbow in and keep the ball up. And then when you shoot, you extend and you lay these fingers over the front of the rim, not the back. And if anybody runs at you, anybody runs by you, anybody yells at you while you're doing that, anybody sticks a hand in your face, don't pay attention. You keep your eyes fixed on the rim because that's where you're going to score. Now, just to let you in a little secret, in the NBA, and professional basketball, um, defenders have learned that there's a little trick that they can play. As they run at a shooter like Steph Curry or uh, years ago Steve Alford at IU, pure shooters, if you run at a pure shooter, don't just run by them and yell or anything else. Get your hand up, and as you go by them, push their elbow up just a little bit. Just push their elbow up. Throws their whole shot off. Now, if the referee doesn't see that happen and the shooter misses a shot, what's the shooter do? Come on, you know, come on. But if they call the foul on the defender, what happens? Come on, come on. You see, in the NBA, nobody's ever wrong, see? And so the defender or the offense, one of the two. But you've got to keep your eye on the rim. If you don't keep your eye on the rim, you don't make it. There are other areas it applies to to keep your eye on the prize. My third grade class, when we were learning multiplication tables. Anybody remember that? You do remember multiplication, right? Okay. Um, You know, our teacher, our third grade teacher would look out on the class. We knew once we headed down into the year of school that somewhere along the line, she would call on you. And she would call on you to, for example, she might say, Fred, stand up. I want you to do your multiplication tables for the sixes. And I'd stand up and say, 6 times 1 is 6, 6 times 2 is 12, 6 times 3 is 18, 6 times 4 is 24, 6 times 5 is 30, and on and on and on and on until you get 60. And then, if I did them all right, if I get them all right, our teacher, as a motivator, would pull, before she asked anybody, she would pull out of her desk a basket and put it on top of her desk. And it was filled with candy bars. And if you could do your sixes or your sevens or your nines or whatever she asked you to do that day, you got to choose the candy bar out of the basket. Now, unfortunately, during those days, they didn't put Snickers in there. (laughs) But they did. She did put bun candy bars in there. Now, other than Snickers, a bun candy bar will light me up. And so I was out there and I was hoping, I was praying, I was sitting in my seat going, I hope she calls on me first, I hope she calls me first, because I don't want anybody else to get that bun candy bar. Third grade, I kept my eye on the prize, right? Now, the best part of it is, I learned my multiplication tables, you know? Today, if somebody in the office says, what's nine times nine? 81, you know? I don't even have to think. I can do those just like that. You know, when Sherry and I shop. We're out, and she'll say, what's 30% off this? Boom, I can do that, right? You know, because we memorized it when we were kids. Hmm. Church camp. Fourth, fifth, and sixth grade church camp. I went every year, every year church camp. And every year you put on a team. And that team, if you memorize the most scripture in the week, and you gain the most points at the end of the week. For example, if you memorize the Ten Commandments, you got ten points. If you memorized John three sixteen, you got like two points. If you memorized uh, Acts two thirty eight to forty one or forty two, you got like eighteen points. I mean, it was just like it was all out there. And so, man, I memorized and memorized and memorized. And at the end of the week, in the last chapel session, they would announce the winner, the team that won. And if your team won, woohoo! You were on your way to the canteen for a free candy bar and free coke. The eye on the prize, right? Now as kids, that was important, you know, to get that free candy bar and that free Coke at the end of church camp, right? But I can tell you today that of all those scriptures over all those years, they're still in my head. I can quote to you scriptures that I memorized then in the King James Version. I still remember them that way. And when, you know, sometimes when we throw a scripture on the screen or something and it's not out of the King James that I remembered, I always go, whoa, 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 that's not what it says. You know, probably really does. But I remember those scriptures. They're in my head and God can use them even today. But we always talk about keeping your eye on the prize. So let me ask you a question today. How are you doing on keeping your eye on heaven? I mean, isn't that the prize? Isn't that the, the, the place we want to be at the end of life here on this earth? Don't we want to be in heaven to spend an eternity with Jesus? Isn't that the prize? And, and let me say right now, it's what we do here in this life that determines where we, where we will spend our eternal life. Either heaven or hell. There's no in between. And today the parable that we're going to study tells us that. From Luke, the 16th chapter, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to go there and, and I want you to keep that open because we're going to refer to it a couple different times. But I want to talk to you about keeping one eye on heaven. And I, and I believe that, that this passage, even though it's very difficult for a lot of us to hear and to listen to, this passage is a challenge. From the Lord to us. And here's what it says. The Bible reads like this. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every single day. And at his gate, the compound, you know, he had a wall and a gate. At the gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Hmm. And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side in heaven. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, that's the rich man, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus, by his side, the beggar. So he called to him and said, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about hell today, but um, I do want you to know that this passage teaches us a couple things about hell. Number one, it's real. Number two, it's full of fire. And number three, if you're there, you're going to be tormented for an eternity. Now, some people don't like to think about that. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. And Abraham replied, Son, remember that your lifetime, you received good things, while Lazarus, the beggar, received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, listen carefully, church, between us and you, is fixed a great chasm, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there, from hell, to heaven, to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, what did he say? They've got the scripture. They've got scripture. He said, let them listen to the scripture. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. In other words, maybe you could raise Lazarus. They all know he died. Maybe you could raise him. He could go and warn them because they know who he is. And then they were to repent. And Abraham said, if they do not listen to the scriptures... To Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I believe that last verse has a couple of different meanings. Number one, that they wouldn't believe it even if Lazarus showed up and was risen from the dead. I also believe that he's referring to the fact that even if Jesus Christ rises from the dead, some people will not listen to him. That's true. That's true. Some people won't even listen to a risen Savior. Hmm. So what can we learn today? There are two things, two things you need to learn from this passage. Two things you need to take to heart and understand. Number one is this. You need to live life with heaven on your mind. Live life with heaven on your mind. In other words, you can look up into heaven and we can think about heaven. We can dream about heaven. And we need to think about heaven when we live out every single day here on earth. You got to keep one eye on heaven. Why? Because that's the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on heaven. And if you keep your eye on heaven, then that prize will be a motivator for you to live your life for Jesus. Now, I also want to warn you about that because I don't want you to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. What do I mean by that? I mean by that, but sometimes people get so caught up in every day spending all their time thinking about heaven and all their time diving into the Word and all their time talking about heaven and talking about those things, they're of no earthly good to someone who needs to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't share because they're thinking about as themselves and getting to heaven. And so you need to be heavenly minded, but not so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Good. Why? Because we live in a world that is depraved. Now, the word depraved simply means we're set apart. It's apart from God. It's a depraved world, a depraved culture that we live in. I mean, this world is full of shootings, murders, stabbings, drugs. I and mean, you, you go down the list. You can fill in some of those blanks, can't you? Your broken relationships, broken hearts, disease... I mean, we live in a culture that is depraved. It's removed from God. And Paul writes about that in Romans, the first chapter, when he writes these words, we're going to focus on verse 32 here in just a minute, but listen to what he says in Romans 1. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God For a lie. Hmm. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Now, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, and they were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty. Listen to what God writes for the due penalty for their perversion. Perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, our depraved culture comes from a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They even invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now listen to verse 32. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. What? Yeah, here in this text, it's talking about people who choose to be in a same-sex relationship, and God says, that's a perverse thing. That goes against my will, my intended will, for every human being. But it can be also said of those who approve of abortion. And we just went through two weeks ago, the whole abortion issue, and everybody's all upset, and and about, you know, you're going to take it away, and you're going to do this and do that. You know what? It never should have been approved of in the first place. Did you notice what verse 32 said? It's not only that people are inventing ways to do evil, but they're looking at others and saying, yeah, go ahead and do that. I mean, it's your life. It's your body. You do whatever you want. I, I'm OK with that. And God says the person who approves of that kind of behavior is a sinner. Separated from him because they approve of the sin. You see, we don't like to talk about that, do we? We don't talk, like talk about heaven and hell and, and those kind of sins in the scripture because some of you have friends. Some of you have family members who have gotten caught up in those kinds of sins and others. And I might remind you that there is forgiveness of those sins. If you'll repent and turn away from those sins and come back to the Lord, he will forgive you and give you righteousness once again First John 1, 9, he'll do that for you. But if you stay in that sin, you got big trouble. Because when you stay in that sin, what happened to the rich man? He went up in hell. There is a real hell, and it's an eternity of torment. So you need to stay away from that, and you need to choose heaven instead. What path are you going to be on? I think you ought to be on the path uh, that God gives us, that Jesus quoted to us in, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, when he said, I want you to go. I want you to go and make disciples, okay? And baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have listened, all I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. I want to pull out those four action words. You need to go. You need to make, you need to baptize, you need to teach. That's the path God wants you on. That's the path God wants you to be doing. In this culture that's full of depravity, you're to be carrying out the great commission of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got a buddy of mine in my ministry who says, most often churches now these days are doing the great omission. They're not doing anything to reach out and bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we know that that's what we're called to do. It's the path that we're called to be on. We don't need to be in the great omission. We need to be in the great commission of Jesus Christ. I don't know about many of you. How many of you have ever, ever read um, Lewis Carroll's classic work, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland? How many of you have read that? Okay. A few of you. Um, I never have. Um, I chose to read that I chose to to have read, uh, The 50 Greatest Running Backs of the NFL, instead of this. But I hear it's a classic. And, And it speaks volumes when they have a conversation recorded in there, where Alice, she's in Wonderland, okay, and she has a conversation with a Cheshire Cat. And here's the way it goes. Alice says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat responds and says, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And Alice says, well, I don't much care where. And the cat says, well then, it doesn't matter which way you go. Is that you? Is that you today? You don't really care where you're going? I hope not. I hope you really care And I hope you keep one eye on heaven. And I hope you're really practicing what God has given you in his word, because that's going to give you the opportunity to see him for an eternity. You need to care about the path that you're on today. The second thing you learn here in this parable is simply this. You need to make decisions with scripture in your mind. Now, years ago, I don't know if you remember this or not, years ago, before everybody had, you know, the bands that say, you know, Pray for America or Live Strong or if you have a friend who has cancer, you know, um, somebody, their name like Joe Strong or whatever. And everybody had those. Well, way back, there was one that came out in Christian bookstores and it just said WWJD. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? You see, you know, when you're making decisions in life, maybe you need to ask that question. What would Jesus do? But you know what? I've come to have a little problem with that because here's what I believe. I believe that the word of God is the will of God. And if you believe in the word of God, you're going to know the will of God. And if you believe the word of God is the will of God, you'll know what to do. You'll know what to do. When that temptation comes along, you'll know what to do. When that, when that difficult decision comes, you'll know what to do. Because the word of God is the will of God for your life. And that's why Jesus said, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What he's commanded is what we need to teach and what we need to practice. And you see, I believe that 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 in that scenario we've got to understand that even in this text, you remember in this text, you remember what was said here? You know, the guy's in hell, the rich man's in hell. He's looking up at Abraham and he's saying, Hey, Abraham, can you do something here? Because you know, I, I need some relief, but 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 I also have brothers and they need to hear. And and Abraham says, They've got the scripture. They've got Moses and the prophets. They know what it says. If they just listen to what the scripture says, then they'll know what to do. And then he says, well, well, just send somebody, send somebody, because they're not listening, obviously. Send somebody, maybe resurrect somebody from the dead, and let them go, because they'll believe them. And Abraham says what? If they're not going to listen to the scripture, they're not going to listen to a resurrected person. You see, that's where our culture is today. Our culture is caught up in a situation where they don't want to hear anything from the Bible. Don't, don't tell me that. Don't read to me from that Bible. I don't want to hear anything about it. I've got a family member doesn't want to talk about Scripture, doesn't want to talk about Jesus, doesn't want to talk about the Bible. Okay, Our culture is like that. They don't want to hear about the Bible. They want to hear about what they want to do in their depravity. In their depraved minds, they want to do what they want to do. So look around you in the world. Is it good? No. We live in a tough place. It's because of the depravity and a separation from God. You know? And I was a young preacher, and that's been a long time ago. Um, I was a young preacher. I, I really had a hard time with Billy Graham. I was 18, 19 years old, and... You know, I went off my first year of Bible college, and I thought I was really learning a lot and, you know, that kind of thing. And I'd watch, I'd watch his crusades. I would listen to him preach, and I'd see at the end how they would all come down in decision time, and they would pray over him, and then that was it. And I thought, that can't be it. There's got to be follow-up. There's got to be follow-through. There's got to be, you know, all these things they need to, what, that's wrong. And I was pr- fairly critical of Billy Graham's crusades. And then I began to realize, after digging in a little bit and researching it, that's not all. Because the end of Billy Graham crusade, when they come down front, and they get them with counselors, and they pray over them, and they pray with them, they fill out a card, and then those cards are distributed to local churches where that crusade is held, and those churches follow up on those people. I thought, oh, boy, stupid me, you know. Then I started studying out Billy's life. Found out that his favorite saying while he's preaching, you know what that is, right? If you have listened to Billy Graham, his favorite saying, the Bible says. The Bible says. Not I say. Not anybody. The Bible says. That's his favorite saying. I began to listen to that. I began to listen to what he was saying. And I began to listen to all of his, his uh, preaching and teaching and, and that kind of thing. And the one thing I noticed was, even as big as Billy Graham became, I mean, he served like seven presidents as a counselor. As big as he became, listen now, he never became bigger than Jesus. He wouldn't allow that to happen. People wanted to give him accolades, he wouldn't allow that happen. People wanted to put him up on a pedestal, he wouldn't let that happen. Because he knew that the scripture, the word of God, the truth of God was what was important, and God himself was the priority. Is that where you are? Where the Bible says? And if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's it, you know? I mean, that's where I try to live my life. If the Bible says it, that's it, done. We're not talking about it. If the Bible says it, that's truth, that's what it is. I'm a pretty black and white guy. And I believe that the scripture is true. And I believe every word of it is true. Do you? Because that's going to make a difference in how you live life and then where you wind up at the end of your life. Did you notice here in this text, did you notice something about the rich man? The Bible never says he did anything wrong. The Bible never says he did anything wrong. Did he commit any sin, anything like that? Well, you know what the Bible tells us? He did nothing. He did nothing for that poor beggar at the gate. He didn't feed him. He didn't care for his wounds. He didn't do anything. He did nothing. And he wound up in hell. And Christian, you better hear this. If you think you're serving Christ... And you're doing absolutely nothing for anyone else or for the church or for the cause of Christ, you got a problem. You got a problem because God doesn't care for that. Now, you notice also in this text <laughs> that the guy who suffered all of his life, the poor beggar, Lazarus, you know, he got taken care of. My guess is his faith was in one place that even if things didn't work out here on this, this earth, God would take care of him. <laughs> One more thing from this text. Did you notice Abraham pointed out when the rich man said, send somebody, put some cool water on my tongue. I'm, I'm burning up down here, that kind of thing. What did Abraham tell him? We can't come to you and you can't come to us. Because God has set up the chasm. You can't go from hell to heaven. You can't go from heaven to hell. The chasm is set up. What you've done in this life, what you've lived out in this life, that determines where you spend an eternity. So you better make decisions with Scripture in your mind and on your heart so that you'll do the thing that God wants you to do. There's an old saying. It goes like this. It says, this life shall soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. You can do a lot of good things in life for other people. Good. I try to do that. But only what's done for Christ is going to be eternal. Only what's done for Christ is going to last. My service to him That's my life. So i got to keep one eye on heaven. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to live a life with heaven on my mind, and I'm going to make decisions with Scripture in my mind. And if I do those two things, i got a lot better chance of living my life in honor of the Father in heaven. You might remember the name Al Kaline. Al Kaline was a, a pro baseball player, played for the Detroit Tigers, Uh, and uh, late 60s, mid to late 60s, maybe early 70s. Man, he could run, he could throw, he could hit. I mean, he was just an amazing baseball player. And at the end of his career, toward the end of his career, they had a big banquet to honor him in Detroit, and uh, 2,500 people paid to come to the banquet. And uh, at the banquet, uh, the guy who was going to introduce him from the Detroit Tigers uh, system Uh, He got up there at the podium and he said, you know, uh, Al could, man, he, he had this many hits in his career. He had this many singles, this many doubles, this many triples, this many home runs. He had this many RBIs. He threw out this many people. He stole this many bases. I mean, he went down the whole list of all of his accomplishments as a professional baseball player. At the end of that introduction... Al Kaline stood up and walked to the podium, everybody cheered, everybody clapped, everybody in a roar, and then they settled down. Al Kaline stepped to the podium and he thanked the person who had introduced him. He thanked everybody to come that night. And then he said, yeah, over my career I had this many hits and I threw out this many people and I hit this many home runs and I did this and I did that. Then he looked up and the place got really quiet. And said, but there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this. Hitting a baseball. Throwing a baseball. There's got to be more to life than this. I'm here to tell you today, my friends, there is. And that's a life that's lived with Jesus Christ walking with you. That's, that's the more. It's gotta be more than this life, what we do here. It's walking with him. And you can do that when you keep your eye on heaven. (laughs) Some of you here today have never made that decision some of you have never given your life to Christ. You, you attend, you pop in and out, you show up, you do whatever. But you never, never given your life to Christ in Christian baptism and begun to live for Him. Today should be the day. Today should be the day. And there are some of you who gave your life to Christ years ago or maybe even just six months ago, and, and you, you did go into the baptistry, you did come out and you served for a while, and then you got a little distracted and the world caught your eye and, and you began to wander a little bit and you've been kind of floating and you're not making good decisions. You're not following Him. And your eye... It's not even close to heaven oh you're, you're baptized but what are you doing for christ that will last that's the question so today it's time it's decision time at chapel rock you can make that decision to begin your life or your walk with Jesus and, and and you can come to him and stir the baptismal waters and and then jump in. Or if you've kind of wandered off the path, you're kinda of like Alice in Wonderland, it doesn't really matter which way you go. It does. The steps are wide open, you can come pray. You can tell God you made some mistakes and you want to come back. And you wanna live for him. You can do that today. We got people who will come and pray with you. We have people if you want. Or you can pray on your own. Totally up to you. It's your call. It's decision time. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. While we sing, won't you come? Father in heaven. Lord, with heaven and hell being so real. And with our choices being so critical. God, we can't go through life without you. And so, Father, I'm praying today that the Holy Spirit will move upon each and every one of us. And for those of us who need to renew our commitment, renew our faith and get busy serving you. I pray, God, that will happen. And I pray, Father, for those who have never, never, ever, for the first time, given their life to Jesus, I pray they'll do that today. And, Father, whatever it is, maybe there's a sin that needs to be gotten rid of, maybe there's a relationship that needs to be mended, maybe, I don't know, Lord, you do. And you know what, Lord? We do. We know what we need to do. So Father, may your Holy Spirit move upon this group and may we respond to you and may we give you the glory and the honor you deserve by once again surrendering and serving you. I'm just going to pray this, this prayer of submission in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Why don't you stand with us? Why don't you sing with us today? And while we sing, if you want to make a decision, if you want to pray, if you want to come to Christ, if you want to get off the wrong road and get on the right one, why don't you come? While we sing.